HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. You may have noticed that one Whole Foods Market store is not like the other. We're proud that each of our stores has its own quirks, a direct connection to the surrounding community, and buys and sells their own products. Whether it's artisanal chocolates exclusive to Bowery, small batch pickles in Chelsea, or a featured craft beer on tap at West 97th, you'll find that each store is a little bit different than the next. With six Manhattan locations, Whole Foods Market offers a taste of every neighborhood. Come see us in Tribeca, Bowery, Union Square, Chelsea, Columbus Circle, or the Upper West Side. Open seven days a week from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. For more information, visit www.wholefoodsmarket.com. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby, broadcast live to the Cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. Good Sunday to you all, and welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby. Uh, Our show is being produced and engineered today by Jack Inslee. And today, after a brief hiatus, we are coming back at you with our State of Cheese series, and we're going to be talking the state of cheese in Massachusetts. Um, Before we get my first guest on the air, I did do a little bit of... uh, Research regarding the uh, the history of cheese making in Massachusetts, and came across some interesting facts, which I wanted to put out there as sort of the backdrop for our show. The first thing that I found is um, an illustrious piece of Massachusetts cheese history. Uh, Massachusetts is actually home to the famous Cheshire Mammoth cheese, which is it should be a part of every you know American history book, but um, I don't know if it always makes the cut. <laughs> the Cheshire Mammoth Cheese was a gift given to President Thomas Jefferson in 1802. Uh, it was from the town of Cheshire, Massachusetts, and it was a cheese made from the combined milk of every cow in the town. Um, apparently, the local preacher was a big fan of Thomas Jefferson and wanted to produce a gift that would kind of show the gratitude and the support of his uh, of his um, you know congregation and so they made every you know they they pulled the milk from every cow they brought it to a central uh, a cider mill actually 
And um, in the cider press, pressed a giant cheese that was four feet across and 15 inches tall. And it bore the Jeffersonian motto, which was rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Pretty, uh, pretty heavy stuff there. <laughs> um, but the story of this cheese is amazing. After it was made, they had to figure out a way to get it down to Washington, D.C. And um, being such a large and unwieldy sort of fragile object, they actually decided to transport it by sleigh because it was, uh, thank God, it was during the wintertime. God, if they made that in the summer, it would have been a big, <laughs> huge mess. But it took three weeks for them to take the cheese from uh, Cheshire down to Washington, D.C., and the cheese lived at the White House for over two years as they kind of chipped away at it slowly but surely and served it at state dinners and uh, all kinds of things until it was finally just kind of was spent. Um, so that was, uh, you know, the first bit of Massachusetts cheese trivia that uh, I wanted to share with you guys. The second is that today um, there are more than 20 artisan cheesemakers in the state, which is a pretty impressive number, uh, you know, seeing what a small state it actually is. And um, the producers run the gamut from, um, you know, very interesting sort of ethnic companies. There's a Portuguese cheese company uh, started in 1927 called Martins um, that was uh, meant to feed the, uh, the Portuguese employees of a, a local mill. Um, there's famous blue cheese makers. There are um, fresh goat cheese and chev makers. Um, and the, the variety of cheeses being made in Massachusetts is really pretty astounding. Um, and it's no wonder that there are so many artisan cheesemakers there because it is also in Massachusetts that in 1978, the New England Cheesemaking Supply was born. Um, it was a company started by Ricky and Robert Carroll in Ashfield, Massachusetts. Um, they still have a really excellent website, newenglandcheesemakingsupply.com. And, um, and have a really wonderful book called Home Cheesemaking that um, is, a, is a guide to many of our country's best uh, artisan cheesemakers. Uh, so without further ado, I will introduce our first guest today. Uh, we're we're going to be talking with Barbara Hanley from Shy Brothers Farm. Um, Barbara, are you with us? Uh, I am. Oh, thank you so much for holding on while I was like going through my litany of uh, Massachusetts cheese trivia. I found I think you're fascinating. <laughs> well, it was a, 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 once I found that story, I was like, "That is just too cool. We can't pass that over." <laughs> um, so but, the White House had to deal with off and Oz. <laughs> oh my goodness! Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, they're big honking cheese. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of big honking cheese, I think that's mm-hmm. that's an appropriate segue because you guys are known for really tiny cheeses at Shy Brothers. Yes. Um, and yep. yeah, can you tell our listeners about them and and what their where the recipe came from? Yes, um, we uh, went to France. Um, uh, Carl, who's the farmer and cheesemaker, and I went to France with my husband and looked at different uh, cheese opportunities there because we kind of wanted to expand our um, vision of what was possible. And in the Burgundy region, we found a farm uh, that had a herd similar to Carl's, uh, mostly Holstein uh, and with Ayrshire right back in. Mm-hmm. Um, that farm made a tiny little cheese called bouton de coulotte, um, which is typically made of, uh, that means trouser buttons, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's typically made out of uh, goat milk, and um, in the Burgundy, um, they make them very dry and salty. They're literally the size and shape of a thimble, a sewing thimble, and the workers actually put them in their pockets and carry them out into the fields 
for snacks while they're uh, picking grapes in the Burgundy region. That, um, that sounds that sounds pretty ideal to me, having a pocket full of little delicious <laughs> cheeses. <laughs> um, we make them quite differently. Um, we they're not as salty and they're not dry. They're cr- much creamier. Um, I was just listening to your uh, show from um, maybe last week, maybe before on Appenage with um, Michael Anderson, mm-hmm. and um, uh, it, it it struck me. Uh, what happens to a large cheese happens to these tiny cheeses in spades. Sure, absolutely, <laughs> because there's so much less cheese for, you know, it, it, the ripening like, process happens much, much faster. It, it, it's, like, um, it, it's like you've got uh, 100 corners on these little thimbles. They're just, uh, they're very delicate. The um, uh, humidity and uh, air exchanges and airflow have to be exactly right. Um, and uh, it's taken us several years to get it the way we want it so that uh, we're growing the kind of cheese that we want to grow. Um, we, we, we didn't know what we didn't know, and we've learned a lot. It's been, so it's was been that, a journey. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Well, every cheese, yeah, it kind of takes a, it seems like, you know, you could spend your whole life perfecting it it's a it's an incredibly intricate intricate art um well first of all i should say these little cheeses are called hannibals um Mm -hmm. they are absolutely gorgeous and what how do you age them what's what's the kind of process that you guys have devised to deal with such fragile little cheeses well um if, if i could if i could back up a little bit um most cheese turns from milk to cheese within a couple of hours or maybe overnight um these che- this milk takes literally five days to become unmolded and turn into a cheese that has a form wow. uh, and a shape. Um, so everything that is in the milk is pulled out. Uh, I mean, it really shows up in this cheese. Um, so that gives them a very complex flavor profile. Um, at the point they're unmolded, they're very vulnerable. Uh, as you know, cheese is acidic, so it's a mold magnet. Mm-hmm. And you have to put the mold on that you want, or a mold that you don't want will develop on the cheese. So we uh, spray a geotrichum on the outside of the cheese. Okay, uh, and can you tell our listeners what that what that is, just so they? Yeah, can... it's it's a type of mold that uh, we actually import from France. Okay, and uh, we we mix it with um, uh, water that we purchase because actually, if we use water that comes out of the city system where we make the cheese, uh, the chlorine will ruin it. <laughs> will ruin the geotrichum. It'll, it'll kill the geotrichum. So we, we spray the geotrichum and leave that unmolded cheese with the new uh, geotrichum on the outside and let it develop in the make room for about 24 hours. Very warm, very humid. Uh, conditions that mold loves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that geotrichum is aggressive, and it covers the cheese well and protects it. Um, then the cheese goes into a drying room for 24 hours, um, which slows the geotrichum growth down and lets the cheese start doing its aging. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the geo is too aggressive, the rind will be too thick. Oh, um, we've all, yeah, and I feel like we've all experienced that. You eat yeah. a cheese that's like half rind, half... Yeah, uh, exactly, <laughs> half. exactly. And even though the rind is delicious and edible, there's there's a balance... Absolutely. Um, ...that that has to be part of the experience of eating the cheese. So then the cheese goes into the aging room for another four days. 
Um, and in the aging room, there's a very specific range of humidity and um, uh, temperature and airflow. And we have a retrofitted um, uh, building that we're using that is a, a nightmare. So Carl <laughs> has learned <laughs> how to move, you know, do the dance. He moves the cheese around constantly. He knows the conditions in every cubic foot of that room. Isn't that wild? Um, so he's constantly rotating for four days so that the cheeses in, inside, uh, you know, inside the, the array will age the same way as the cheeses outside the array. I love it. Okay. Waltzing, waltzing with Hannah Bells. I feel he like we could uh, exactly. <laughs> it'd be a beautiful old song. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, one thing y'all were talking about in the Afanas show was uh, was packaging. It took us about I'm going to say three years to get the right packaging because if you package, um, we we need it for for the customer to be able to see this cheese. Yeah, because it's so unique. Um, uh, but if you use uh, regular plastic, you know, think saran wrap, the cheese can't breathe. Absolutely. And again, if a little bitty cheese can't breathe, if a big, if that's bad for a big cheese, it's really bad for a little bitty cheese. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so then we tried perforated film, um, and that let the cheeses dry out too quickly. Oh, okay. um, and we finally found a film that lets the uh, oxygen and CO2 respire at a rate that is perfect for the geotrigum and perfect for the cheese. That's, um, a, that's amazing. And so was that, a, was that a product that you guys developed, or did you find no, it uh, well, out? I, we, I looked for it for two years. Um, I have a little bit of a chemistry background and microbiology background, so I spent a lot of time on French websites trying to find this. It actually is not being used anywhere in the cheese industry right now. Uh, it's being used in another industry that is food, and so we have borrowed it for um, to use in our Hannibals. I love and it. it. It's perfect, yeah. Now, we don't let it touch the cheese. Um, we, we package so that it, um, uh, you know, protects the cheese, but it doesn't touch the cheese. Um, wow. But it, but it lets it breathe. Well, like you said, that I mean, that's uh, you put all that work into that little cheese, and then I feel like, you know, I feel like we talked about that a little bit with Mike too. That 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 packaging is all important because you know, if if it gets to the if it's perfect in the cave, and then something goes awry during the you know shipment process or when exactly. it reaches the exactly. end consumer, then you know all that hard work is for naught. So, well, and our babies need to get oxygen, new oxygen, at least every forty-eight hours. We tell customers twenty-four, so that if they uh, can't do it in 24, they'll be horrified and maybe do it every 48 like they're supposed to, <laughs> uh, because they have to have fresh oxygen. Uh, they, they have to have. Uh, if you take uh, uh, film off of a brie and you taste ammonia, that is basically the rind that is dyed. Yeah. Uh, yep. I mean, that, that is the smell of dead rind. Um, because it didn't, it wasn't allowed to breathe. Uh, it wasn't allowed allowed to refresh its oxygen and get rid of its CO2. Um, so, so we, I, I, we're hopeful that if we can do the small cheese, we can do a lot of other things. <laughs> we learned a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, I wanted to back up just a second and talk a little bit more about how you got your start. Um, because I know the sh- uh, I was looking at your website and the Shy mm-hmm. Brothers, it says, are four brothers. Um, and so I was wondering, how, you know, what your relationship with them is, how you got hooked up with them, how you guys got started making cheese. 
Well, they're, they're two sets of twins. They're third-generation dairy farmers. Wow. Uh, they grew up on this property, uh, on their farm. Um, they are unbelievably shy. Um, when I can get all four of them together for a photograph, I call it a sighting, <laughs> <laughs> like rare birds. Yeah. <laughs> um, they they really are quite shy, and they're wonderful. Um, they're they're really they're really great guys, and they're highly respected by other farmers. I got to know them because I was working with um, an agricultural commission that we got started here in, in our town of Westport. And uh, in my previous life, I worked with businesses to help them make more money, and I like to do that. So we, we, my husband and I decided that I'd basically transfer those skills to the farming community. Thank goodness. And, Gosh, uh, we need more people like you. <laughs> well, the, the Santos brothers, it, it, it's a good feeling, actually, to help people make money. The Santos brothers were trying to work with some other dairy farmers to uh, convert to organic Mm-hmm. And um, so I was running numbers with them on that and uh, advising them. And basically, we couldn't get enough other farmers to uh, convert to organic to uh, get a truck to come in and pick up the milk. Mm-hmm. Um, so they couldn't do that, but it let me get to know the brothers better and um, let them get to know me better. And so we uh, were looking around to find a value-added product that would let them stay in business. Westport went from 11 dairy farms to four within five years. Wow. And they're now down to two. So, and Westport's a beautiful town. It looks like Ireland. Um, hmm. I mean, it's, it's really, really quite lovely. It's on the coast, and we have, you know, fog and salt air and... Um, happy, uh, you know, happy place for cows, for well, sure. Well, we just did, we didn't want to lose that. Nobody wants to lose that. So, it, you know, the farmers have to stay in business. You can't just... Uh, can't uh, just well, gonna. yeah. We we say uh, I was talking to somebody from Green Market here in New York City um, at the uh, a week or two ago, and they were saying uh, there's a new initiative called Eat the Landscape, where you know you like you like what you're looking at, and so you know in order to keep looking at that and, and enjoying that beautiful you know country, you have to make something there. You know that is that is exactly right. It really has to do with uh, ag agricultural economic development. Um, and if we want it to stay, we have to help these guys be nimble enough to move into this century. Absolutely. A lot of them are still, you know, in the 1960s, the way they do things. So that's what we've done. And these, all four of them are just incredibly smart. They have high school educations. Um, Carl, the, one, the partner we work with the most, can remember everything I said five years ago, which is very troubling. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. <laughs> but he's, he's brilliant. He's, he's, uh, he's, I've worked with people on Wall Street and you know, internationally, and he is probably the smartest person I've ever worked with. Wow. Wow. <laughs> oh, it's fun. Yeah, that is that is very very cool. And so, how did you and your husband um, initially? You said you were working for the Ag Commission. Are you originally from uh, Westport area, or um, did you from, guys? I'm from Alabama. I was going to say um, you don't you don't have yeah. the Massachusetts accent. <laughs> yeah. I tell people I'm from South Jersey, but they don't they don't buy it. Um, <laughs> um, we had we had moved up here, and uh, you know wanted to be involved in our community, so we. We, I started working with the Agricultural Commission to get that started. And, um, you know, some farmers were receptive to looking at things new ways, for example, communicating with their neighbors in a more positive way, and some are not. Yeah. Um, you know, that's the, um, 
that it, you know, it, every industry has to change. Every industry has to change. And That's a really good farming point. is no different. That's yeah. a very good point. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, but it's, you can see why it's hard, you know, it's like it you've is. done something one way for, you know, three generations, and all of a sudden that system doesn't work so well anymore. Right. But, you know, making, making milk is a whole lot different than making cheese. It is. And the more you have at risk, the less you can risk. Yeah. So it's very difficult for farmers when they could lose everything to make changes. Um, and so, I mean, your, your story, I feel like, have you, um, you know, have you inspired other farmers in Massachusetts to other dairy farmers to sort of pursue this kind of, uh, this kind of an operation? Well, we've worked with about, uh, we got a group together of about eight dairy farmers in our county, and the counties in Massachusetts are quite large. Um, and, uh, while, you know, there was such a big learning curve for us, and, uh, you know, we're, we're still learning. But just to get started was a huge learning curve, and we decided to get with those farmers and basically download all that information, and we did that. And today, three of the eight farm families are on their way, um, and, and I think we'll get two more of them uh, making cheese. Um, so, you know, that's the best thing. We, I mean, farmers are very much, uh, they have a show-me attitude. And so I figure when we get a new roof on the barn, that's when they'll start making cheese. <laughs> and, and we're not there we're still only using about 15 percent of the milk that is produced at the farm um okay. so we're going we're planning a new creamery at the farm so that we can expand because we're almost at capacity where we are now um well that is incredibly incredibly hopeful and exciting and you know i hate to do it unfortunately we we had one other guest uh one other farmer booked for today's show um, so I think we're going to have to make a transition oh, yeah. and take a quick break. But I would love for yeah. you to be back on the show uh, sometime, sometime real soon because I just be feel glad. like your your story is amazing. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. I thank you so much. So we'll we'll talk to you again very soon, right. and we'll take a quick break. We come back. We'll talk with another farmer in Massachusetts. Take care. public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Thursday at 4.30 p.m., tune in to Flash Talks Cash, hosted by Joanne Flash Fleming. Flash Talks Cash is a weekly talk show discussing personal and small business money issues. The show examines current topics from the financial tax world and the ways it impacts your wallet. The focus is to help people and small businesses find ways to make money, save money, spend money, and know what to do with your money when you get it. Again, that's every Thursday at 4.30 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. 
So we are back on Cutting the Curd after a very lovely song about Massachusetts that I've never heard before. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And my guest for the second segment of the show is Susan Salu from uh, Rossenbrook Farm. Um, Did I pronounce your last name right? Yes, you did, Anne. Thank you. (laughs) I have a I have a funny last name too, so I'm extremely I'm sensitive to that. (laughs) Um, Well, thank you so much for taking time to be on the show today. Um, We uh, we were just speaking with Barbara Hanley from um, Shy Brothers uh, Farm, and um, you know, and and now we're going to transition to talking about your cheese making history. And I feel like it's it's a totally different story. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started uh, on your farm? On my farm, well, I was one. I, I, I was. I'm from the generation of the homesteaders back from the early '70s, mm-hmm. and I got my goats then with more of a homesteading idea in mind. But then I loved them, and I started making cheese. I met a woman in Montreal. We didn't live far from Montreal, in northern New York, and I, um, I started making cheese that was good, and then realized that where we were living, there was no market. Um, but where I had grown up in the Berkshires of Massachusetts, there perhaps was going to be a market. So in 19, I think it was 79, we moved um, down here with some foundation stock, and we started from scratch. We started from woods. We used our chainsaws and cut down trees to open up property and milled that land, milled that lumber up and built a barn, and off we went. Wow. And, and where exactly is your farm located? It's in Monterey, Massachusetts, which is in the southern part of Berkshire County, outside of Great Barrington and south of Lenox, um, that area of Massachusetts. Wow. That, it is beautiful, beautiful country over there. Oh, I there. feel totally fortunate to, uh, to be here. Um, and we have a lot of it. We're, we're all foodies here in the Berkshires. So my business has become very um, local. I'm maybe 85% local and 15% goes to New York and Boston. But, um, That's incredible. And so yeah. those local sales, are those people actually just coming to the farm? or No, they're wholesale accounts. They're shops, and we have lots and lots of restaurants and wonderful, wonderful chefs. Um, so it's a, a mixture of stores and restaurants. A little bit of sales at the farm, but not not percentage-wise. I make about 500 pounds a week, and we don't, you know, and most of it goes out wholesale. Wow, that's amazing. And so, well, that's really fascinating. You know, I haven't, I feel like I haven't heard that exact uh, story yet from any cheesemaker that I've spoken with. That you realize that the market was not where your where your original farm was and so you you made the decision to to move it that's really uh i mean that's really fascinating that um you know you could just kind of pick up and, and move everything had to take yeah. a lot of guts well we didn't yeah we didn't have yet we weren't yet commercial it was more um just a farmstead kind of operation so it wasn't um it was moving the animals but and we were also young you know <laughs> and goat cheese was not yet something you know Laura Chanel was maybe just starting up and but there weren't it goat cheese was still kind of as i say regarded with suspicion <laughs> so uh it it was a long time ago things have really changed absolutely well what do you i mean yeah i i feel like that's such an interesting sort of chapter in the history of american farmstead cheese the sort of you know women like you who are making goat cheese in the late 70s and early 80s um did you know one another was there kind of a, a sort of a collective conscience there or did you all just kind of arrive at this 
you know, at this delicious cheese at the same time <laughs> from different. That's, I, I sometimes I feel like we, oh, you know, at, at a certain point, there were a little grouping of us in Massachusetts um, who um, kind of chatted with each other, but we didn't. I think we were pretty insular. We, you know, we were home kind of struggling along, kind of doing it from scratch. There, I don't remember having the opportunity to go many places to, um, to like see what people were doing and how they were doing it. And it, it, it was very different from how it is now. And how did you learn to, to make cheese originally? Well, I, you know, I fussed around with it myself um, and would make some good cheese and some really awful cheese and no consistency. And then I did meet a French woman, Martine Gadbois, who was um, in Montreal. And I went up and, um, you know, visited with her. And she kind of got me on some, you know, give me some basics, like you have to do this and you have to do that. And then I just, I just fine-tuned it. And I, I have kind of a I'm kind of particular about things, and I think that um, that makes you a good cheesemaker. <laughs> you know, you can tend to detail and tend to, you have to be able to repeat, to get a consistent product. I was very concerned with some um, consistency, and, and you have to be able to duplicate things. You know, any little difference you make, you make a different cheese. So, you know, I, I had to kind of... Kind of hone the process. And, yeah, yeah. Well, and, it, and I made it in my house at the beginning. We sold it kind of illegally. We called it our test marketing days. <laughs> and then uh, as we were striving for our license, it took us maybe four years to build the barn because we, you know, we even made the shingles for the stable part of the barn. You know, we were those, wow. we were really the old, old. we, were, we had a lot of energy. That's, <laughs> so it was the former husband and myself did this. So um, it, was a, it was a big big undertaking that's that is absolutely incredible um well i i was just thinking i wanted to get back you were talking about um you know the sort of particularity and the meticulousness that it takes to make good cheese and i ran across somewhere while i was doing my little reconnaissance work that um you had some sort of an art background you were were you an art oh, educator i, I was an art education major in college yeah <laughs> It's so funny. I feel like, well, it's funny. I was an art major in college, too. I studied painting and drawing. Yeah. And I feel like I know a lot of other cheese people that have an arts background. And I feel like it has to come in. Do you feel like that comes into play? I mean, just the patience involved with being an educator, the patience involved with yeah. making art and making cheese and tending animals and all that stuff. Yeah. And, and there's a huge part to this. I mean, I talk about the consistency and whatever, whatever, but... Even in the feeding of the goats and the noticing details, I don't think it's that different from um, from the details that you notice when you're creating art. I, I, I don't think of it as very different. I was more a potter, so I was more kind of a had my hands in the in the in the, in the soil kind of art, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I still use my glaze scale to weigh out my salt for my cheese all these years later <laughs> you know, there's a little part of it that that has been toted along but, uh, oh that's amazing and so do you still make pottery as well or are you completely no, consumed I, by your I, goats it's just really especially you know i'm in my 60s now so it's like it's a real struggle to uh to just get my keep my farm going but i i do some i go to some painting classes sometimes in the winter oh, um that's great just, yeah it's hard. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, I kind of stopped making art around the same time that I opened the shop. And it's like, yeah, yeah when, you have a, when you have a business, it's yeah. just, it's really difficult. And you, your mind is consumed in a different way. You know, I, I can't, I can't clear it as easily and, and just sit and 
you know, it's, it's just different. different. Yeah, no, you have to kind of have a lot of like empty free space for thinking and creating yeah. and, and you don't have that so much when you have so many immediate yeah. things kind of nagging at your, <laughs> at your consciousness every day. Um, well, what does your operation look like today? How many goats do you milk? And um, yeah, what's, and what are yeah. the variety of cheeses you make? I, um, we milk about 45 um, goats every year, more or less, give or take a couple. And I, early on, I stopped making a bunch of different kinds of cheeses and just honed in on um, making this one fresh chev. Um, and to give what I call the illusion of a product line, I have some <laughs> tried and true herbed, two other herbed varieties, one with thyme and olive oil and one with chives and garlic. You know, I'm not a flavor of the week sort of person. And though, and, I, and it seems a little boring and not too sexy in that in that way and that I just do what I do and I do it well and I do the same thing year after year <laughs> um, and I feel like I'm a farmer maybe more sometimes I don't even feel like I'm so much a cheese maker is that I'm a farmer making cheese with my milk yeah uh, it, it's a I don't know. It's, it, it goes between the two, you know. And it's just, well, it's cer- it's, yeah, it's certainly the end product, but there's so much background work that goes into that end product in detail, like you said, you know, yeah. with the animals and the feeding and the land and everything. It's a, yeah, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful result, but it's certainly not the bulk of uh, <laughs> what has to go on on the farm, I'm sure. Yeah. And, the, and sometimes the, you know, the, sometimes the gathering of the milk seems like just the, tip of the iceberg, you know, because then you do need, then you are making this perishable product and you need to get it to everybody on time and manage all your accounts. And, you know, it's never dull. You know, you, do, you have your hand, I have my hand in every part from the veterinary part to the accounting part. I kind of do it all. And it, it's, it's, it's just a real stretch, always a stretch, but totally engrossing and I, I never, sometimes I think, oh my goodness, this is a lot. You know, maybe you need a real job. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then I think, no, 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 no. I, I just totally love what I do. I just totally love it. Yeah. Oh, that's that's amazing. That is, well, it's really funny because, you know, when we were corresponding a bit about the show, we were talking about doing, you know, this State of Cheese series and your remark that you don't often get out off the farm because there's, you know, there's always too much to do. Um, but I was wondering, I mean, throughout the course of your career, I'm sure you've influenced people and you probably certainly have peers in Massachusetts or other states that are, are, you know, making great cheeses. I was wondering if you could tell us, you know, a little bit about that. About that. Well, I do, I do have interns who come, although I must say that over the, you know, and I don't know how many interns I've had over the years, only one of them has gone on to do anything the least bit commercial. Most of them just say, I would never do this much work for this little return. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, that's just a little, uh, that's a little strange. But back, there, there wasn't, and something just pops to mind that years and years ago, um, I had the opportunity to meet the um, the folks at Redwood Hill in California. And oh yeah, Jennifer Bice, Jennifer and, and her um, partner Stephen at that point, and we got on quite well. And I actually have their bloodlines in my herd. I I bought, have bought bucks from them over the years. But um, they were looking for of wanting to add a fresh chef to their um, roster of which they have quite an extensive roster of, ing- of um, cheeses and products that they sell. 
and I have no qualms about, you know, we, I fully shared what I do and what I, and so we always called it kind of Rosenberg Farm West out there. When they, <laughs> it's certainly so a good place kind of a to go fun. for a little consulting gig, if that could ever happen, you know. <laughs> Every now and again that happens, but I don't know. It's, it's, I, there's a part of it that, um, you know, as one old Amish farmer told me once when I asked him if he could go look at a horse with me, he said, but then I wouldn't be home on my farm, now would I? <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's very true. He said he could, but yeah, no, it's it's amazing. I mean, there's so much to be there's so much to be done, so much to be kind of you know sort of looked watched over all the time. All the time, yeah. I feel like I'm on call a lot, and because there's not only there's the equipment, there's the animals, there's the you know I have six or seven people who work for me, you know, part time, and you know if somebody doesn't show up to work, it's it's all about me. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, it's tricky. Absolutely. Well, and and so um I feel like you're probably on call more than ever now. Um uh, is it uh, you were saying that kidding season hasn't quite started, but you guys are sort of gearing up for that. Yeah, we're gearing up right now. Though between the 15th and the 20th, we'll probably have 30 goats fresh and we'll probably have 85 90 kids born and um we'll be we'll be in our totally totally into it it's it's an exciting time of year at the barn you know they're just new life right now i can't imagine mustering up the energy it's like oh where's it going to come from but it always it always comes you know the weather warms up just a little today the weather's starting to change and and that and, and it comes back Absolutely. Well, I'm sure it's like pure adrenaline too, you know, it's just yep. all that sudden, you know, activity is, uh, it's gotta be pretty incredible. Yeah. It's, it's lovely. The smell, you know, the, the earth is kind of opening up and everything's, you know, the smells are coming back and everything, the smell of kidding and the, it's just glorious. It's just a renewal time of renewal. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how do you deal with, um, you know, uh, what do you, what is your sort of practice when it comes to kids? Do you let their, um, do you let the moms stay with the kids for a while? Do you, you know, I, 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 I've changed my method over the years and I used to let them stay with the moms a little bit. Um, and then worry, I have a lot of triplets and we have quite a few sets of quads. And for the last maybe five or six years, I've been taking them away at birth, which is, at that moment, it's hard. Um, mm. I tell them, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I <laughs> kind of leave one with them. I'll leave the freshest one. Take them. And then we have lights. We have all the bottles are labeled with the mom's name. They all get their mom's colostrum. And it, everything, nothing's perfect, you know, no system is ever perfect. And this, when we left them with them for a week or five or six days, they got way attached to each other, and there was huge trauma when we took them away. Oh, I can only imagine, yeah. Now there's more trauma for me than there is. <laughs> I feel like it's such an unnatural act. Um, there's also part of it that I feel like licking the kids off and all that is all part of the uterus health, and so I, we try to manage that but these kids then drink readily from us from the bottle they're totally attached to us last year i didn't lose a single kid you wow. know and that I, we, we had maybe 120 all together and i can keep them all alive i don't end up with any weak one everybody can get attention they get some lights they get a you know they get a heating pad they get their milk they get and it, it goes a little more smoothly but 
there's something unnatural about it because every drop of milk that you take is a drop of milk that was made for an animal that is not now drinking that milk. And that's just the reality of a dairy product. Sure, and sure. It's a, it's, a, it's a little hard for people to get that. It's some, still hard for me sometimes. Yeah, no, it's definitely, yeah. it's, a, it's a, I don't it's know. Still a, it's, a, it's a business and you have to make some compromises. It's all not just perfect. You know, if I didn't, it's such a, there's such a tight margin. You know, I, 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 it's hard to make a living at this if you go from the beginning to the end and you're producing the milk because it's expensive to produce milk and um, we don't pay farmers a fair price at all for milk. And when you do the whole, when you do the farmstead cheese thing and you're producing your own milk, and all um, the labor involved and the feed and the... It, it's and the, a lot. Yeah. And you have to make every, you have to make every, every effort to uh, be as efficient as you can. You know, for years, I even fed them cow's milk after they got their mom's colostrum. I would haul raw Jersey milk and feed them that. Now, I'm a little too tired to do that and I get goat's milk now. But that, <laughs> but that I, I probably have $300 of cheese making milk into a kid by the time he, it's three months old you know yeah That's why people feed milk replacer I don't, I don't feel they grow well on that and every it's all about nutrition I think milk production is all about nutrition and that nutrition starts from birth absolutely yeah. you have that you don't get out unless you put in and I try to give them the very best yeah that I can of everything Oh man. Um, well that, I mean, yeah, it's like you said, it's an exciting, it's an exciting time. And, and I always try to explain that to my customers too, that there is no black and white when it comes to all these questions that people have about food and cheese today, you know, it's, uh, mm-hmm. um, it's, but I, that's why I love, um, hearing from farmers like you and, and hearing everyone's methodologies because, um, they all, you know, every, each one is different and, yeah. uh, they all lead to amazing and delicious products. Um, well, it seems like we have already run out of time, which is very sad. <laughs> but, oh, but it's been fun. <laughs> it has been very fun, and I, and I hope that um, you know that uh, in a future show you would be willing to come back on and talk more. Maybe we can uh, talk after kidding season and see uh, yeah. how this year's see how it went. <laughs> Absolutely, anytime, man. It's, it's yeah, I would love to. Well, thank you very much for talking with us about your farm in Monterey, Massachusetts, and um, everyone should look out for Ross and Brook uh, Farm cheese because it is absolutely delicious monterey chef is what is the brand name monterey chef and i'm sure you can find what are some of the places in the in the berkshires where people can find it because i know a lot of our listeners just just about any any cheese shop any cheese or specialty or um i I hate to list a few you know but there's the guido stores and the knee james cheese and wine stores and then the the town like even our own Monterey General Store and and whatnot, just from from Pittsfield down to the Connecticut border, just about anywhere you might want to buy cheese, we're there. <laughs> Fantastic. Yep. Oh well, thanks again for taking Good. the time out Thank to you. talk, and uh, we will see you next Sunday for another episode of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on HeritageRadioNetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Foods USA. 
In late March, Dan, Andrea, Patrick, and the Heritage team are traveling to the coldest reaches of the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont to help the Cantor family tap sugar maple trees. Then the maple sap will flow down to the sugar house where it is boiled gently over a wood fire just as it has been for generations. Just a few days later, this grade A amber syrup will be poured into the beautiful glass jugs and sent to you for pancakes, waffles, desserts, glazing hams, or just drinking by the spoonful. There's only a limited supply, so order today. Each one-liter bottle is $45, including delivery. Delivery will be at the end of March, and we will notify you of the exact shipping date. Each shipment will include a CD explaining the whole process. You can also follow us on YouTube while we work and bottle. In the meantime, you can head over to the Heritage Radio Network archives and listen to Linda Palaccio talk about maple syrup on her show, A Taste of the Past, Episode 12. For more information, visit www.heritagefoodsusa.com. The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Join wine impresarios Aaron Fitzpatrick and Brian DeMarco as they dish out on the latest industry news with winemakers and tastemakers on Heritage Radio Network's revamped wine show, Unfiltered. Aaron Fitzpatrick, one of the first hosts on HRN with her program at the root of it, amps up the volume and unfiltered content with co-host Brian DeMarco in this 2011 Redux. True to the original format, Aaron and Brian will keep you abreast of current happenings and break down the news and global events, distilling complex into anecdotal stories that inspire. From media and political events to hailstorms in Argentina, no topic is out of bounds. Tune in every week to hear them chat up the industry's biggest personalities and host on-air tastings with visiting vintners and the country's hottest sommeliers. Whether you're an expert or an enthusiast, Unfiltered demystifies wine and lets you know what it really takes to get a bottle from the vineyard to your neighborhood wine shop. Unfiltered broadcasts live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. on Heritage Radio Network. The following is a public service announcement from the Museum of Food and Drink. Dave Arnold and Patrick Martins have gathered a team of New York's most innovative chefs and bartenders to create a nine-course fundraiser lunch at Del Posto, Sunday, March 27th. Their intent? to kickstart the greatest food museum in the world. The menu for this unprecedented event is derived from educational themes of the museum. Chefs will draw inspiration from sources outside their normal sphere. How will a cutting-edge chef handle the Paleolithic, or a dish only using pre-Columbian ingredients? What will a modern Italian chef do with ancient Rome? The chefs include David Chang of Momofuku, Wiley Dufresne of WD-50, Mark Ladner of Del Posto, Nils Noren of the French Culinary Institute, Cesare Casella of Salumeria Rossi, Carlo Maracci of Roberta's, Brooks Headley of Del Posto, and Christina Tozzi of Momofuku Milk Bar. Bartenders include Audrey Sanders of Pegu Club, Thomas Waugh of Death & Company, Simon Ford of Pernod Ricard, Damon Bolte of Prime Meats, and Eben Clem of BR Guest Restaurants. Proceeds from the event will directly support the Museum of Food and Drink. Tickets are very limited and $250 per person. To purchase tickets, please visit mofad.eventbrite.com. That's M-O-F-A-D dot eventbrite.com. Once again, M-O-F-A-D dot E-V-E-N-T B-R-I-T-E dot com. Sponsored by Pernod Ricard, Heritage Foods USA, Pat LaFrieda Meats, Barterhouse Wines, Del Posto Restaurant.